always on a Sunday, uh, but I have a, a great, great, great dad. As you guys know, you guys all know Pop-Pop, right? And uh, he's the best to me. <laughs> he's my personal favorite. Um, he, uh, he always, always, from the time that I was a little tiny kid, from the time that he was saved, I think I was four when my dad got saved, or, and uh, he always, always, always was quick to bring everything back to the Lord, you know, sometimes annoyingly so, you know what I mean? Like, like everything doesn't have to be about the Lord, you know what I mean? Like, like frankly, this morning when you're brushing your teeth, remember, <laughs> do it for the Lord. I'm like, really? Really? You know? But he put in me, he instilled in me always a constant reminder that the Lord is supposed to be first in our lives, right? The very first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You know, God announces himself as who he is. You know, and he would later uh, continually refer to himself as the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, and that is, of course, not before me in, in the sense of in order, right? I got to be number one. You know, Baal can be like five, but I got to be number one. Uh, no, he said, before me, and the word there is in my presence. There should be nothing else in your life uh, that is lifted up so high as me. And everything in your life should be brought back to your relationship with me. And I'll tell you, there is a, you know, David understood this when he talks about this in the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 27 where he talks about being lifted up high upon the rock and his enemies, his face, his head is lifted up now high round about his, his enemies. And he was able to do this kind of spiritual disappearing act whenever he would, he would draw back into the, into the Father. No matter what was going on in his life, no matter how far he, he found himself from God and from God's will, or what, no matter what the circumstances were in David's life, whether he was sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, which was his anointed place to be, or whether he was being driven into the wilderness. Now remember, of course, David, uh, when God first called him and God first anointed him and, and used him to uh, destroy Goliath and to defeat the Philistines that day, he became Saul's right-hand man. But Saul, soon after that, seeing the anointing that was on David and that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him, became exceedingly jealous and tried to kill David on several occasions. And David was driven into the wilderness. Uh, and for years, he was running and he was hiding, going from place to place in the wilderness. And during all of that time, he was writing the Psalms. Uh, and he was looking to the Lord, and he was always focused on God. And then after his kingdom was firmly established, and David was the king, and he was mighty, and, and he had victories over all of the nations around him, and Israel was established as a preeminent force in the land. And then in the midst of all of that victory, and all of that uh, elite uh, you know, power, and, and the luxuries, and the, the things that go along with that, David, once again, is driven from his kingdom by his own son, Absalom, who rises up against him and rebels against him. Uh, and, 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 and as he's leaving his kingdom, some guys walk and follow him on a hillside throwing dung at him, throwing, you know, dookie. <laughs> he's throwing poop at the guy, at the king. You're a man of blood, and you're cursed, and God's doing this because of this and this. And David's men are like, hey, David, um, can we just go chop his head off real quick, you know, get rid of this guy? And David's, David has this, this unbelievable humility where he says, no, 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 absolutely not. If God has called him to come curse me, then let him curse me. And, and David was willing to just accept any of life's circumstances as God's doing something. I don't know what. And I may not even know the reason why. Sometimes he did know the reason why because of something he'd done. Uh, but he didn't always know the reason why. But no matter what, David would always say, just don't let me fall into the hands of men. You ever feel like that? Don't let me fall into the hands of men. God, do to me whatever you want. Take me wherever you want to take me and do with me whatever you want to do with me. I'm yours. I belong to you. But let my fate rest in your hands. That's the heart I want to have, right? That's the one I had to, because he is a good, good father. He is a good, good father. And I love the portion of scripture where Jesus is talking to the people, not just to his disciples, but to the people. And he, and he says, you know, which of you of his son asked him for fish uh, or for bread would give him a stone? And, and which one of you of his son asked him for, for a fish would give him a snake instead, instead? And he said, so if you being sinful know how to love and take care of your children, how much more will your heavenly father love and give the Holy Spirit to those who ask it of him? 
You know, that's the father. So, so I don't know for, for the audience that's here, I don't know all of your, I know a lot of your stories, but I don't know all of your stories. And I don't know what kind of an upbringing you had. And I don't know what kind of a father you had. Uh, some, some of us have had, you know, what we would consider the best dads ever. Uh, and some of us not so much. Um, but God is your heavenly Father, and that's not some ethereal hocus pocus dominocus. You know what I mean? Woo! There's your ghostly dad someplace. No, no. God, the Creator of heaven and earth, has a personal interest and a vested interest in your life, and He loves you. And he wants you to walk according to his word and according to his precepts so that you can experience all the blessings that he has for you. And not only that, so that also when you walk according to his word and according to his precepts and in close fellowship with him, when you go through the valleys and when you go through the difficult times and the trials and the tribulations that this life, not maybe, not might, but will bring... You can have that same focus that David had, where it doesn't matter because I'm in the hands of the Father. And I know that I'm His. I know in whom, Him whom I have believed, and, and I know that He is able. I know that He is able to bring unto completion the work that He started in me. And all of these events in my life, good and bad, as Paul says, I know how to abound, whether it's in much or whether it's in little, whether it's in freedom or whether it's in bondage. Regardless, I know how to abound because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And Paul knew that he was called according to a purpose. He knew that he had a job to do, and he trusted his father. Jesus Christ was our ultimate example of that. He trusted his Father, even though he was uh, the second person of the triune nature of God, right? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. He put all of that lordship and all of that aside to take the form of a man and to live in complete and in absolute and total submission and trust to his heavenly Father so that he could be for us an example, that we would look to him the author and the finisher of our faith, and say, I want to trust God like that. Don't you get sick and tired sometimes of finding yourself in a position where you've been trusting in yourself, right? Where you've been looking to your own way, and you've been going your own way and doing your own things, and you look around you and say, geez, I, I, it, life's okay, but something's missing. Something's missing. And even if you're a born-again, Bible-believing Christian, that so often can happen. And God uses that in your life and in my life as discipline. As the Bible says, God disciplines those that he loves. He's careful to rebuke and correct them, just as a good father is careful to rebuke and correct his son. And he uses these things, these feelings of loneliness or the feelings of sadness or the feelings of something's missing or the feelings of something's not right, I'm out of step. He will use that in your life to gently try to bring you back into that close walk and that fellowship with him and when we read through the bible and we study the life of abraham and we study the life of moses and we study the life of david and all of these other greats from the old testament what we see in these men and women is an absolute and unwavering trust and faith and hope and belief that god was their father and that they were passing through this world on their way to meet him right and that's what we, we, wanna, we hope to have as well. I, cert, I certainly do. Thank you, for, though, for, um, for all of your prayers. Just as an, uh, as a, as an update, um, we took Dad to the hospital yesterday. He was just not feeling right. He was feeling off. And, and he had a heart attack a couple of years ago, a couple of stents put in. You guys remember that. So his cardiologist says, listen, if you're not feeling right, go to the hospital, right? And we all are like second yes and amen to that. So we took him in yesterday. EKG was great. Um, the uh, enzyme test, they did two of them were great. And um, they did a, 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 it was an echocardiogram, is that what it's called? They x-rayed his chest, basically. And uh, everything's good. Everything looks fine with his heart. They did find a little mass on his kidney. So they did another MRI of that. Uh, and his cardiologist, he didn't, they wanted him to keep him overnight. Dad was like, no, tomorrow's Father's Day. I got wings to eat, right, with my fat son. And we're going to eat wings. And we're going to eat cake. And we're going we're gonna to float in the pool like a couple of manatees. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm going home. I'm out of here, you know. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the uh, physician's assistant uh, tattled on him to his cardiologist, <laughs> basically. 
and, and spoke on the phone to him, and he said, I want you to stay there because they're going to do a stress test on you in the morning, and you're due for one, and I can't get you in for a while because there's such a line, there's such a backup. So that's why Dad's not with us today. So, but thank you very much for your guys for your prayers, and, and uh, hopefully he's going to be home soon. Hopefully Mom will be getting the call to go get him. So, and, and it's like, really, Lord, this week? Because we're talking about the death of Moses. <laughs> it's like, sorry, I, everything's funny to me. Um, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. <laughs> and I want you to know that, that when dad does die someday, you know he's going to die someday, right? Right? So am I. I may die before him. You never know, right? The amount of wings that I'm going to eat today, especially if he's not here. Uh, when dad dies, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to weep and I'm going to laugh, right? And I'm going to praise God and I'm going to be so happy and so excited because I know exactly where dad's going, right? So we don't mourn, like the scripture says, as those who have no hope. It's, it's a planting of faith. He's, he's going to be planted in faith someday, hopefully a ways down the road. Uh, and and, and then, it's, then I'm just waiting my turn to drop dead, right? So I can see him again, and I can see Jesus and be there together with him. You know, that's the hope that we have. Again, it's not some ethereal thing that's out there. It's a very real and present truth that we have. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, if you turn there with me. Now, poor Moses, you know, God's been telling him, you're going to die, <laughs> you're going to die, you're not going to enter into the promised land, and he reiterates again and again to Moses the reason why, and he says here uh, in verse, verse 1 of 34, then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and all the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. All the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. And so it's important, I think, to always reiterate because God brings it up to Moses several times. And in fact, at one point in time, God, Moses is kind of hounding God. Please, please, please. I want to see the promised land. Please, please let me in. I'm sorry, but please, please. And God said, I don't want to speak about this again with you, Moses. Right? You know, you, that's a dad thing to say, isn't it? I, I don't want to talk about it again, you know? Mike Cods used to tell me that he, he would, he would when, his, when his girls would start to go, da, 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 when he had told them to do something, he would just, he would do this, right? And it was, it was a cue, listen to the words of my mouth. Listen to what I've said, plus I'm way bigger than you, right? <laughs> and God says to Moses, I don't want to talk about this again. Now, this goes back to the water from the rock. So when the, when the children of Israel were first coming through the wilderness, remember, they were thirsty. And as usual, when the Israelites encountered trouble, they immediately wanted to leave God and kill Moses, right? It's like, great, what a church. <laughs> you know, wow. You know, thanks, guys, for the vote of confidence. You know, let's, uh, let's kill Moses and go back to Egypt, you know. Uh, and so, of course, Moses uh, was told by God to strike the rock and that water would flow out of that rock. Now, this is perhaps one of the most absolutely clear and direct um, uh, references to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Because the Bible actually says in the New Testament that the rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness was Christ. You know, Papa was a rolling stone. You know what I mean? Literally. No. And, 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 and just for clarification, Jesus didn't take the form of a rock, okay, and roll. It's a, it's a figurative thing. It was a direct thing that was speaking to the Christ. It was something that God was using. And, and it's wonderful to me because in spite of the people's grumbling, in spite of the people's complaining, in spite of their attitude, God was faithful and God was gracious. And he was like, even though they're complaining and they're ready to kill Moses and go back to Egypt, I need to use this to show them that this is going to be written down in the books of the law so that future generations can remember this because this points exactly to Jesus. This points directly to my son. And so we have this, this thing where God tells Moses to take his staff and to strike the rock. And so he strikes the rock and then out of the rock flows the water and it waters the whole nation. They all drink from this water. We don't know how big that rock was. Was it huge? Was it small? How, you know, it was a miracle. It was a miraculous thing. Now, later, when the children of Israel uh, are, are going through uh, the, the, the 40 years of wandering, 
um, God again tells Moses to bring water from the rock, but he tells Moses this time, I want you to speak to the rock and, and water will come forth from it. And Moses is mad at the people, so he gets angry and he strikes the rock three times. Must we bring you? And God tells him, you're not going in. That was it right there. Moses, you're not going into the promised land. And here's what he says, because you failed to hallow me before the people. You misrepresented me to the people. You acted towards them in judgment when I was trying to show them Jesus. Because the first time he told Moses to strike the rock, and Jesus Christ is the rock, and he said that out of, out of, out of a person who believed in him would flow what? Living water, that there would be this living water. And so there's a direct picture that Jesus, who is a rock, was struck for us, and through our faith in him, living water flows from him and through us. But then later on, after that had occurred, Moses was shown by God, now you only need to ask. Remember what Jesus said? Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. We only have to ask. Jesus, uh, Moses struck the rock and that was not what God had instructed him to do. And so he said, because of that, Moses, and specifically because you failed to hallow me. It's not just the disobedience. It's not just your anger. It's, it's you misrepresented me when I was trying to show the people something very specific, Moses. And there's going to be a judgment for you because of that. So that's why Moses is not allowed uh, to enter into the land. And, and God tells him on several occasions, you're not going in, and that's why, okay? But I love this here. Uh, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah. This is actually in, in uh, present-day Jordan, uh, which is across from Jericho. So Moses could see the walls of Jericho. But I want you to notice what it says. The Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, the south, and the plain of the Valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Now, you can't see all that with the naked eye. So I want I to tell you that God was doing something again supernatural in Moses. That God was showing Moses something that the naked eye could not see. And I want you to see how it, the, the, it's referred to. The, the land here that Moses is overlooking, the Israelites have not yet crossed over the Jordan River. The Israelites have not yet defeated Jericho and entered into the land of Canaan to take possession of it. And God is already referring to all of the land using the Israeli names. Because in God's economy and in God's mind, the land already belongs to them. And he's showing Moses. He's taking him on this like virtual sightseeing tour uh, where he's showing him this is where this is where the Jordan's going to this is where this is going to be and this is where this tribe is going to be and this is where the tribe of Judah is going to be and this is where this is going to be set up. And we don't know all of the detail of it or the context of how much that God was able to show Moses there. But this right here, this, this distance all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, you cannot see that. I've been on Mount Nebo. And you cannot see the Mediterranean there. It's impossible. God was doing something amazing, something supernatural. Uh, and I, I hate to, to compare the two because there's obviously no comparison. But remember, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, remember, it says he took him to the, to the top of a very high mountain and showed him at once all the kingdoms of the world, right? So what really is happening here, and we talk about this, that, that we are three-dimensional beings, Right? Uh, and, and scientists believe that there's at least five to seven dimensions. Uh, and what that means is, is that a, a three-dimensional being cannot relate to a, a person who inhabits five or seven dimensions, okay? But that person can see you. That person can relate to you. Just like a stick figure on a flat piece of paper can't, could not do anything in the three-dimensional world that you live in, right? But you can interact with that two-dimensional thing. Okay, so this is, this is just kind of the picture of that. This is a supernatural occurrence. This is God opening that veil, right? Anytime that any man or woman of God has been given by God, and we see this in scriptures, a glimpse uh, of, of the hereafter, when you think of John on the island of Patmos, right? Or Ezekiel, when God is speaking to him, and they're able to look into the throne room of God, or they're able to look into the future and see the kingdoms that God is going to be, and all these things. Are, this is God allowing them to pierce that veil and to peer into something that we are not meant to see as, 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 as human mortal beings, right? This is a supernatural occurrence. This is a supernatural event. That's what was going on with Lucifer and Jesus in the wilderness, and certainly that's what's going on here with Moses and the Lord as God shows him. 
And you know what? God is so gracious and so merciful and so loving, and he really, really liked Moses, right? I mean, he really, really dug Moses. I think he showed Moses things that we, 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 we have no idea. I wonder how much of the land he showed him. And Moses, someday it's going to be this, and someday it's going to be this. Maybe, he, maybe even a sneak peek of the last Jerusalem, of the last holy city. We have no, no idea, no comprehension, but this is, again, God working with Moses uh, and showing him mercy. Now, uh, verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, so, uh, excuse me, but no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now, long life uh, ran in Moses' family. His father Amram lived to be 137 uh, and his grandfather, Kohath, lived to be 133. And his great-grandfather, Levi, uh, lived to be 137. So a long life kind of ran in the family, but it's amazing. And a long life may run in your family, but there's no 100-year-old Juno you know, climbing Mount Nebo. Right? My grandma's going to be 100 years old on the 4th of July, my nana. I love nana to death. And she's still as feisty as she ever was, you know what I mean? Just a feisty little Puerto Rican lady, you know? She'll cut you still, you know what I mean? <laughs> My nana, you know, she's awesome. But she ain't climbing Mount Nebo, right? She she's in her, sits in her apartment and, and doesn't come out a lot anymore. Her, she's, she's still got her wits about her and all that stuff. But at 120 years old, to scale Mount Nebo, okay? Again, this is, this is a supernatural, or I mean, you know, I don't know how much of this is supernatural and how much of it is just how unspoiled the earth was uh, in, in those days. You know, we have, we have no idea. Like, you just think back a couple of centuries, how people live their lives, you know what I'm saying? We're like, you ever see Wally the, about the robot? You know, he goes up on the ship and everyone's just like, like 800 pounds and they're so fat they can't, they can't walk. And they roll around. You got to see Wally. If you've never seen Wally, it's awesome. And so they got to float around in these chairs, right? And they got little hands and giant, big, fat arms, and they drink these big slurpy cups of whatever it is, this sugar sauce. And they can't, they don't walk or anything anymore. They absolutely cannot take care of themselves. You know what I mean? And you watch that, and it's like, all right, I'm going to the gym on Monday, I swear, you know. But like, I feel like comparably, that's how we are <laughs> to the people of even 10 centuries ago. And they didn't live as long as we do. But the lives that they lived, can you imagine, you know, you movies you've watched like Braveheart and like that, where you got one army on this side of the field and one army on this side of the field with shovels and sticks and rakes and rocks and swords and spears and, and battle axes, and they just run at each other full speed and, and we'll see what happens. You know, like, can you even imagine that kind of grit? And I, and I wonder, going back thousands and thousands of years to the time of Moses, how different life looked. You know what I'm saying? You know, we don't get better. That's one of the reasons that, that evolution is silly. One of the many, many reasons that evolution is silly. We have not gotten better physically. We have gotten better technologically, right? Well, and even that is debatable. If you study some of these ancient cultures, what they were, we can't build the pyramids today, okay? We don't even know how they did that. They had different kinds of technology that, that, that we don't have today. Ours is different. Ours is amazing, and it's outstanding. But physically, physically, what it was thousands of years ago, who knows what kind of people that these were, okay? Uh, I, I, I tend, though, even, even with that said, I tend to lean more towards God was with Moses. God was with Moses. And I think part of this goes back to when he first went and saw God on Mount Sinai, Remember? And he goes up, and God appears to Moses, and Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I'll cause all of my goodness to pass before you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And when Moses comes down to the people, his face is radiating. His face is radiating to the point where people put, make him put a veil on over his face to cover the, 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 the glory of God that was shining physically through Moses because it freaked him out. Imagine, what, what did that look like, right? What kind of 
What kind of thing is that where God's glory uh, exposed to Moses caused his face to radiate in such a way that the people couldn't, couldn't bear to look at him and made him put a veil over his face? That must have given him a shot of something, right? But it says here that at 120 years old, um, his eyes were not dim, nor had his natural vigor diminished. It's interesting. Uh, Moses' life consisted of three 40-year periods. And again, this is a great object lesson for, for the believer today. Three 40-year periods Moses' life consisted of. First was his life in Egypt. Now, of course, Moses was raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. Historians tell us, Josephus tells us, that Moses was mighty. Uh, he had won great victories and great battles for Pharaoh. He was an orator. He was a powerful man. He was a powerful man. He had everything at his disposal that the natural man could ever want or desire. You understand? It was at Moses' fingertips. I think that the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston gives a very good uh, representation and example of, of closely of what Moses' life looked like. And it's a beautiful thing and it's an interesting thing because in spite of all the luxuries and, and despite of all the achievements that he had come to in his own personal life and how much he was regarded by the Egyptians, there was something missing. There was something missing for Moses and he came to find out at some point in his life that he was in fact a son of the slaves. And we know the story. You've all seen the movie. If you haven't, you should, right? Uh, we all know the story. Moses goes out to see the plight of his people. And somewhere during that, during that course of him finding, refinding himself, discovering who he really was and saying, you know, all of the luxuries and all the things of Egypt, it's not satisfying to me. It's not what I'm looking for in this life. I need something real and this isn't real. And in his course of going out and finding that, he sees a taskmaster uh, abusing a, a, an Israeli, a, a Jewish slave, and he kills the guy. And then the thing gets found out, and he's driven out into the wilderness. Everything is taken from Moses. And that's the end of his first 40 years. Everything that he had, all the luxuries, all of the privilege, all of the things are taken from Moses. And it begins the second 40 years of Moses' life, his life in the desert. Some pastors have said it before. He was out there receiving his backside of the desert degree, uh, his BS, <laughs> backside of the desert um, and that 40-year period represents the putting to death of the flesh. The Bible says, I know that in me dwells no good thing. How many of you come to that realization yet? Now, and I don't say that flippantly. And it's easy to say, oh yeah, I know there's no good thing that, that dwells in me. It's easy for me to say that, right? But the bottom line is, is I can find myself sometimes look, saying, there's, there's like eight or ten good things that dwell in me, baby. You know what I mean? You're with me, you got it good. You know, Nikki's the luckiest woman on the face of the planet. You know, I'm the winning lottery ticket she found 24 years ago. I can find myself believing I'm pretty good. And I have to rediscover all over again that no good thing dwells in me. And so Moses is 40 years old. And if at 120 years old, he's scaling mountains, imagine the dude at 40. You know what I'm saying? Because the Egyptian taskmasters were the biggest, nastiest, meanest brutes that the Egyptians had, that they put over the slaves. And Moses says, look this way and that way, and buried him in the sand. Moses was a, was a beast. And God says, I can't use any of that. And I don't need any of that. And so Moses is taken for 40 years into the wilderness in the desert where he learns that all of his gifts and all of his strengths and all of the things that made him a great person in Egypt are absolutely useless in God's kingdom. Oh, if God would get this guy saved. Ooh, imagine if that girl, if that lady, if this person got, imagine, ooh, imagine if they got saved. Are you kidding me? That's like going out in your backyard and saying, that ant, that ant right there. That one's going to move mountains, baby. It's a bunch of ants. You know what I'm saying? You bury them. You bury those ants. It's ridiculous. And 40 years Moses spends in the wilderness realizing God doesn't need his strength. And at the end of that second 40 years, when God comes to Moses uh, and appears to him in that burning bush, and Moses goes up to see this thing, 
And God begins to speak to him. The first thing he says is, take off your sandals, Moses. The place you're standing is hallowed ground. And then he begins to tell him how he's heard the cry of the people of Israel, and they've cried out to him, it's reached the heavens, and now is the time of their salvation. And Moses, I'm sending you. And Moses says, me? You're 40 years too late. I've got nothing. Everything's been taken from me. Uh, the, you know, history says he was a mighty orator. He tells God, I can't even speak right. He's been out here with the sheep so long, he's just, bleh, you know. I can't do that anymore. I can't do that at all. I've got nothing. All I've got is this, this stick. Throw it on the ground. And what God would do with that stick, what God would do with that shepherd's staff that to Moses was a sign of his weakness, was a sign of his ostracization, his being driven out of the land of Egypt, was to him a sign of shame. God uses it to turn waters to blood. God uses it to bring down, to bring down the, the, the most unbelievable plagues and miracles that the world had ever seen before. It brings a nation to its knees. It opens the oceans because it's God's power, not Moses's. And so at the end of the second 40 years of Moses's life, that's where he comes to. God didn't need 40-year-old Mo. God needs a man God needs a woman given to God whose heart says, God, I don't have anything to bring to the table, but I am a vessel to be used in your house for your glory. That's what God's looking for still to this day. And then the third 40-year period uh, of Moses' life is his life as the man of God and the leader of Israel, the spirit-filled and spirit-led life. And that's the Moses that we remember. That's the Moses that we remember. We talk about the first 40 years and all the victories and all the power and all the lug and all that all that Moses was. And we can only we can only imagine. But the man we remember, the man that the Israelites to this day remember and venerate, is a man who understood he had nothing but the Spirit of God. And a man or a woman who has nothing but the Spirit of God has everything that they need to change the world. So <clears throat> Moses dies according to the word of the Lord. At the mouth uh, of the Lord is the actual word here. At the mouth of the Lord, the Jewish people say, with a kiss from the mouth of God. That's a, that's a beautiful sentiment. With a kiss from the mouth of God. Now here's Moses. You know, He's climbing Mount Nebo and he knows he's going up there to die. And I don't think, I don't think, you know, Moses wanted to see the promised land, but I think when he gets to the top of Mount Nebo and God shows him everything, and then he turns around and he finds himself face to face with his creator, and he understands now that that veil is going to finally be broken for good, and he's going to enter in to the heavenly realm, that he's going to enter in. Now, uh, well, well let's, let's, let's move on here. Uh, let's see, uh, he died according to the word of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord, uh, the word is Jews say, with a kiss of the mouth of God, I just said that. So, ver so Moses, verse 5, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he, that is God, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Uh, and Moses was 120 years old. So uh, one interesting thing is in, I believe it's in Jude, Jude 1.9, it tells us that there was a dispute between Satan and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. You remember this? When he's talking about these, these false teachers and these false, uh, these false prophets that uh, have no, no fear whatsoever to talk about celestial beings in the heavenly realms. Uh, well, let's turn there. Let, let's actually, let's turn there. Turn me to Jude. It's the last book before Revelation. So it's the second to last book of the Bible. Uh, and he's talking about false prophets. Likewise, verse 8, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Now, he's talking about spiritual dignitaries, okay? Not, not earthly dignitaries, the spiritual realm. They speak evil of the spiritual realm as though they have some sort of authority over the spiritual realm. That's a whole other message. Um, yet Michael the archangel, 
in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The idea there is, if Michael the archangel didn't go head to head with Satan, but said, he needed the Lord, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, who are we, right? Who are we to act as though we have some sort of authority over the spiritual realm? But we have, I've read and I searched and I found some theories no one has any idea what this is about. There's tradition. There's some ancient writings. Um, one school of thought is that Satan was going to use, to take the body of Moses and reveal its location to the children of Israel so that that would become a place of idolatry, um, that that would be a place that the children of Israel would go and actually worship, and that would be the absolute, and Moses would roll over in his grave, right? That would be the absolute antithesis of what Moses represented. He was a representation of the spoken law of God. He was a representation of God's law and of God's judgment. He was the embodiment of that. Uh, and the idea that he would be used in, in, the, in, the, in the idolatry, the future idolatry of the children of Israel, was something that God could not have. And so he buried him himself in secret. And there's some contention that took place there between Satan and Michael the archangel over the... Can you imagine that scene? You know, talk about one of the things I want to see a video of in heaven someday. All right, can you, I, but we don't know why. Some people believe that when it talks about the body of Moses, it's talking about the work of Moses, the written law. But no, nobody, nobody really knows. It's just an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. Um, here's a couple of things that uh, Matthew Henry writes. Uh, first, just a, just a really neat sentiment. He says, if a man has any friends, he will have them about him when he lies a-dying. But if either through God's providence or their unkindness, it should happen that we should then be alone. We need fear no evil if the great and good shepherd be with us. And I think Moses understood that absolutely, absolutely 100%. Um, such a sight, he also writes, believers now have through grace of the bliss and glory of their future state. The word and ordinances are to them what Mount Pisgah was to Moses. Moses was buried by God. Jesus was raised by God. It's a beautiful picture of the end of the law and the beginning of grace told through a 1440-year lens. The ceremonial law of Moses is dead and buried in the grave of Christ. Remember what Jesus Christ said to his followers. I have not come to abolish the law. Now, Moses is a picture of the law. Moses is that prophet, and he is that embodiment of the law of God. And figuratively, Moses not entering into Canaan, which was called the land of rest, is figurative of the fact that the law can never bring you and I rest, right? simply because of what Paul says. The problem with the law is not the law itself. The law is good. It's given by God. It's perfect. It's holy. The problem is me. I can never attain to the goodness that the law lays out. I can never attain to it. And because I can never do those things, as Peter said, why would we put a burden and a yoke of, uh, upon the Gentiles that neither we nor our forefathers were able to bear? In other words, we never kept the law completely. How are you going to expect Gentiles, that's you and me, to keep the law? The law can never bring us into that rest. But Jesus Christ can, right? And so literally, the Bible says that the written and handwritten requirements of the law were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. And they were buried. And when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, the first fruits, the Bible says, of the resurrection, those of us who believe in him, who have put our faith and our hope and our trust in him, we are raised together with him, both spiritually and eventually physically. I want to finish with a couple of verses. Uh, Hebrews 4, uh, 1 to 3. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest... Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. The writer of Hebrews pointing out, it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we enter into that rest. That's what Canaan represents to us, the rest 
that we have in Jesus Christ. Rest from what? Rest from your work. You can't work yourself into a holy life. You can't work yourself into a relationship with God. It comes through faith, as the Bible says, by grace, through faith alone. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? The law is not bringing anyone into that, into that uh, promised land of rest, but Jesus Christ does. Hebrews 7.19 says this, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Uh, and finally, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19, God said this to Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, Moses speaking to the children of Israel, from your brethren, him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, notice this, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and it shall be whoever will, will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Of course, God prophesying through Moses to the children of Israel directly about Jesus Christ, because they said at Horeb, they said at Mount Sinai, we cannot see the voice of, hear the face of God, we cannot hear the voice of God, we cannot bear it, it will destroy us, we can't stand in his presence. He's too good, he's too holy. Even the brightness of Moses' countenance, they sought to cover because it was too much for them. And so God says, the answer is, I'm going to send my son. And I'm going to send him in the form of a man from the lineage of David, of the tribe of Judah, from amongst them. And they will listen to him. And those who will not listen to him, it will be required of them. And of course, that's the picture of Jesus Christ. Moses, a picture of the law, and Jesus, a picture of the fellowship and grace that we have in God. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, until Jesus, that is, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. And boy, did he ever. So I'm going to have the guys come forward, uh, the ushers come on up, and we're going to share the Lord's table together. It's a perfect time to do it, talking about the law versus the grace and the mercy and the relationship and the fellowship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. The person that does the law will live. That's what the scripture said, the old script, the Testament scriptures say. But in Jesus Christ, believing in him, our faith in him is what grants us access into the very throne room, throne room of God. It's what gives us relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the beginning, he's the middle, and he's the end. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And if we can't get along in all, in, in all the churches and all the denominations and all the different you know, places that teach some different minor different things here and there, and we can't agree on certain, certain philosophies, one thing we all ought to always agree on is who Jesus Christ is. He is our all in all. And communion, every single time we share the Lord's table, to me, it is such an awesome reminder of that because this is something that Jesus Christ specifically and purposefully took the time and the care to, inst uh, to initiate this with his disciples so that then they would pass it on down through the generations of the church to you and I. Jesus Christ taking the Passover meal which was according to the law of Moses, and changing it into a meal with God, a meal of fellowship based on what? The brokenness of his own flesh. This is my body, which is broken for you. And the shedding of his innocent blood. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that is poured out for you that I offer freely. And Jesus that night changed the and transformed the Passover meal into literally a meal of fellowship with Almighty God through Jesus' sacrifice. I love it. 
And Jesus says, whoever asks me into his heart, or who invites me into the house, I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me, right? And in that culture, you know, eating with someone was a very, very deep sign of friendship, of fellowship, and of, of intimacy between people. You would never, ever break bread and eat food with someone who you didn't trust with your life. That was the culture. And Jesus says, I want to break bread with you. It's an amazing thing. And just like every promise that's given to us in the Word of God, it's received through faith. This can simply be matzo crackers that we got from the international aisle at Wegmans and Welch's grape juice. Physically, that's all that's there. But if you take these elements, as Jesus spoke what they represented, and in your heart by faith you say, not only do I believe it, I want to have a meal with you today, Lord. I want to break bread with you. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to lean on you like Moses did, like David did. I want to trust in you for my all in all. Would you have that fellowship with me, Lord? The answer is always and unequivocally yes. Yes, that's the God we serve. Amen? So let's pass them out. Come on up, fellas. can't say better than that. Hallelujah for the cross. 
I mean, every single day that we wake up, are we still there, Lord? Are we still in your mercy? Are we still in your hand? Absolutely. Absolutely. The man who calls on him, puts their faith in him, he said, I will in no wise, in no ways cast out. Right? And but the apostle talks about uh, that we would know through our fellowship with God what is the height and the breadth and the depth and the power of his love towards you and I. That he would take a wretch like me and he would call me a son of God. Right? And that he would seal us with his Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. You're sealed. You know what that means? Literally, it's the same word as Jesus said on the cross, to telestai, paid in full. And we'll stand before the judgment seat of God and there'll be one question that'll be asked. Is their name found written in the Lamb's book of life? Did they put their hope and their faith and their trust in my son? And no amount of good deeds or good works or religion or anything else will ever, ever, ever be enough or be a substitute for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's share that together. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You are so good. Father God, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, as we read about Moses and his life and now the life of Joshua, Father, we see these men of faith that put, put their hope and their trust in your written word and in, um, and in the fact that you were always going to be there, Father, and never leave them or forsake them. Father, we pray that you would give us that same kind of faith, Lord, for our lives. And the joy that we have, Lord, so much that they didn't have, Father, that, that, that perfect relationship that Jesus Christ made for us with you, Lord, through his own blood. We pray, Father, that we would leave this place and go into this, the rest of this day and into our, our week rejoicing, Father, with thanksgiving and gladness for what you've done for us and seeking how it is that we can serve you, Father, to the best of our ability as you see fit and as you guide us and as you lead us, Lord. I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would watch over them. I pray that you would protect them, and I pray that your face would shine upon them, Father, that you would be gracious to them, and you would lead them along your paths of righteousness and truth, Father, and you would always keep them close by your side. I pray, Father, that you would give them the faith to stay hidden under your wings, Lord, so that whatever happens, whatever befalls them, or wherever they go, Lord, they would have complete peace, knowing that you are with them, Father to the end of the age, Father. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Happy Father's Day.